We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. Hello, I'm Ryan Smith, and you're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast that brings independent and interesting STEM, that's science, technology, engineering, maths, and medicine, content to you from Tasmania. Our show is supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium youth station. I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which our show is based, the Palawa and Pakana people of Lutrawitta, Tasmania. I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which you're listening. On behalf of everyone, I pay my respects to elders past and present. This week on the show, we're actually recording part one of a two-part series centred around two Fulbright Fellowship students. Next week, I'll introduce you to US-based researcher Cade Kane, but today we're actually focusing on Twix's own Kate Johnson. If you haven't heard her previous episode on the show where she discusses her PhD, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it because it's a really good episode. I'll be asking both Kate and Kate similar questions so that we can get both sides of the perspective when it comes to Fulbright Fellowships, and more broadly, what it means to live and conduct research in a different country. But before we get any further, Kate is just going to give you a brief run through of what the Fulbright Fellowship actually is. Thanks, Ryan, for that lovely introduction. Um, Before I start, I just want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which I've recently been living and working, the Massachusetts and the Nipmuc people. All right, so we'll start, start with just a very brief overview of Fulbright. So Fulbright is an academic and cultural exchange um, for uh, researchers from the US to go to other countries around the world and for researchers from other countries around the world to go to the US. So the US is the central part of the Fulbright Exchange. Um, It was named after a senator called William J. Fulbright. um, And the aim of the program is to facilitate both cultural and academic exchange um, at lots of different levels of research, um, ranging from the postgraduate level to the postdoctoral level to even the senior scholar. Um, to increase collaboration and connections between the US and other countries and mutual cultural understanding. So how did you actually hear about the Fulbright, Kate? Um, so I, I heard about it because there was someone in my department um, who, well, he's a zoologist. Um, I'm a plant scientist, but we're in the same department, biological sciences, who had got a Fulbright um, sort of a couple of years maybe even three years before I ended up um, over here. And I thought it sounded like a cool idea. I knew some people in the US I might like to work with. Um, And then I also found out that someone actually in plant science um, earlier in their career had done a Fulbright. So I I talked to both of them about it. Were you immediately hooked or was it something that you had to work yourself up to actually thinking you could do this? So I actually very honestly, never imagined I'd live anywhere but Tasmania. Um, And I've always loved traveling, but the US was never on my list. So the fact that the US is central to the Fulbright, that it's an exchange between the US and other countries, um, 
sort of that was something I had to sort of get my head around was the fact that I'd be going to a country I'd never imagined myself in um but there were people here that I really really wanted to work with so it was it sort of seemed like the ideal option to me um I was finishing my PhD the Fulbright is quite a short-term exchange usually it's usually sort of around a year maybe even half a year um and it seemed like a perfect sort of little foray into research to go, all right, this would be the ideal project working with my ideal researchers that I'd like to work with. If I don't like this, then research is probably not for me because this is the best thing I could possibly imagine. So the concept of going and living in the US was never something I'd imagined for myself, but the actual work that I was coming here to do was not something I had to work myself up to do. It was just seemed so ideal. One of the really interesting things I find about Tasmania is just like you, everyone who comes says it's such an amazing place. Why would you ever leave? And you do have to pinch yourself. So do you think leaving actually made you appreciate Tassie even more and the work that you're doing in Tassie? Yeah, so I'm Tassie born and raised and very um, proudly Tasmanian. Um, and I didn't, I've always just feel like I've felt Tasmania is the most special place on earth. Um, so coming, coming over here, I, I felt like I already had an appreciation for how great Tassie is. And I'd say, you know, it has definitely reinforced that, reaffirmed how great Tassie is, but more what it's done is made me realize how wonderful and beautiful the U.S. is which I feel like is something I never got any sort of appreciation for um, through my knowledge of the US, which was essentially all through the media. That's my only, so like news, news stories, um, TV shows, movies um, don't represent the US, which shouldn't be surprising to me or anyone. <laughs> you know, it doesn't represent what people are like on an interpersonal level. And I also had didn't have much of an appreciation for how diverse and beautiful the landscapes are. So it really more than anything gave me an appreciation for the US but also I I missed Tassie and I still do and I'm excited to come home. So what have you actually been doing while you're over in the US Kate? Which universities have you been working at? Yeah so I have been primarily based at um, first of all Yale University in Connecticut and then Harvard University in Massachusetts Um, but I also did a little bit of work um, out of the uh, out of Berkeley, um, University of California in Berkeley, um, at a facility there. So the aim of my Fulbright was to look at how the structure, the connectivity of the plant water transport system, influences the way that drought causes air to spread through that water transport system, which causes trees to die. So linking anatomy with the process of um, the water transport system failing in drought. Um, so that involves some really cool things with some powerful x-rays um, at the advanced light source at Berkeley, which is a, a big particle accelerator x-ray machine. Um, and then also um, some other measurements, which I did out in Harvard Research Forest um, and some different than I did a sort of little side project that wasn't part of my initial Fulbright plan um, at Yale as well where I did some stuff with freezing um, and the water transport system. 
So what does that look like in terms of a day-to-day workload? So my day-to-day revolved um, mostly around research. And when I wasn't research, it was around traveling. So I'd say on a daily basis, the activities I did were somewhat similar, really, to to my research experience in in Tasmania. It was a, you know, new people, new environment. But something that's really nice about research, actually, well, I found really nice about it, is that when you're in a, a research community, so mine is plant physiology, you kind of have this pre-curated group of friends in corners all over the world who you know that the at least what you'll have in common is a drive to understand how plants respond to climate and a love and nerdiness for plants. So go to all these little different areas of the world um, to conferences and and in this experience and there's this group of people that are already there sort of like picked for you who you know you're going to have common ground with and that's really nice. So day to day I'd go into the lab I'd do some work, I'd go home, I'd hang out with my colleagues after work. So it was, it was much the same the day-to-day. It's the little, it's the little things, like the, the signage on the roads is different, driving on a different side of the road, the sirens sound different, the way that money's exchanged through reimbursements at the universities are different, the paperwork's different, you know. There's a, it's more the little things. My routine wasn't actually that different. Did you ever have to pinch yourself, for instance, when you're driving down the road and you're like, oh, am I actually on the right side or? Yeah, um, there are many, there's been many pinch yourself moments. On the driving front, I avoided driving because I don't trust myself um, driving on the other side of the road. <laughs> so I rode my bike a bit and I definitely had to like have my wits about me. Even crossing the road, traffic's coming from the wrong way that you think it might be. So you've got to be, got to be on high alert. But the, I've had so many pinch yourself moments in the US. Just it's been the most incredible year, and um, they were pinch yourself moments in terms of I can't believe I get to be here and do this. But they weren't in terms of oh, this just feels like home, because the surroundings are completely different. You know, the houses, the tree species, everything. While my routine was the same, um, the environment that was dropped in felt sometimes a little bit like a movie probably because most of my information about the US is from movies. (laughs) How did you actually think about the Fulbright scholarship as well because it is a really important research program but it's also going to a different country and it's kind of tempting to do a little bit of touristing so did you find that it was hard to stay on track sometimes or was it pretty easy? So this is a very interesting question. I went to information sessions um, that were online that the Australian Fulbright Commission held about applying. Why you should apply, how you should apply, how you should treat the program if you get in. And there were some Fulbright alumni who gave some talks and they really stressed the importance of this not just being you going, inserting yourself into a lab, and just sitting there and doing research, that you should get out there. It's a cultural exchange as much as it's an academic exchange. So it was very strongly stressed to us that we should take every opportunity to get out there, and that's what I did. And it was really, it's been such a fun year for me. It's been really, like, liberating. I'm not saying I felt trapped during my PhD, um, but 
I did say no to a lot of things. I said no to trips. I mean, I still went overseas during my PhD. I'm not going to pretend that I just like worked myself to death. But I said I said no to a lot of little things because I had a schedule. I, you know, had a goal, had a thesis I had to write at the end of it. Whereas for the Fulbright, my um, hosts were very aware of the fact that I wanted to travel. One of my hosts actually lent me all his camping gear so that um, my partner and I could camp at locations as we drove up the West Coast, um, which was so lovely of him. Um, so I definitely travelled and it felt really nice. I think at the end of a PhD, it's such a big thing. It's such a large amount of work and you're ready for a break. So that was kind of my break and it was honestly just one of the most amazing things I've ever done is travel is drive up the west coast of the US and go to go to national parks um so I definitely I did work I know it doesn't sound like it but I did do some work <laughs> um and I did some really interesting work at some really fun places with some great people but I also took the opportunity to travel and that's included three countries including the US so um Germany for a conference, um, Canada for a little holiday, and then obviously the US. Um, in the US, including states I've transited through, I've been to 15 states. Um, I've lived in three different places, been to a total of three conferences, and now have three different homes on the other side of the world that will always hold a little special place in my heart. So it's been a big year and a really, really fun year. Um, and I'd recommend this experience to anyone. What have been some highlights from your trip to the US? Uh, so many highlights, Ryan. So the, the number one highlight would be the lab groups that I've been a part of and the, the friends that I've made. And um, I, I owe a lot of the, the fun that I've had here to, to my hosts, Missy and Craig, and to their lab groups. Um, I'm not going to reel off everyone's names, but um, I'm very thankful to them. Um, Yosemite and Yellowstone National Parks are some of the most impressive places I have ever seen. Olympic National Park also, so um, Yosemite and Yellowstone, um, this is all sort of like the West Coast in general. Um, yeah, that, that part of my trip, that holiday up the West Coast was just incredible. Little things that I've found really nice is how interested everyone is in you being from Australia. It's kind of like being a celebrity. Like someone will hear your accent sometimes and they'll be like, oh, Crocodile Dundee. And you're like, yeah, <laughs> that represents my everyday life. <laughs> but it's, it's just, it's really nice when people are excited to learn about you and they find all the things you abbreviate really funny. I've had many conversations where it's like, what do you call this? What do you call that? <laughs> the, um, the servo for the service station jumpers instead of sweaters you know people are amused by these little things and it, it's really nice um I really like the term y'all to be like you all um I think that's great we don't have a collective sort of term like that in <laughs> in Australian slang I'm into that everything around fall the pumpkins the leaves the spices I love um yeah there's lots of parts of US culture which um are really really lovely and the wildlife here I feel like going to another place um the wildlife being so different is always really exciting there's some highlights 
Join us after the break, listeners, as we continue chatting to Kate about the Fulbright and how you can apply for it. Welcome back to That's What I Call Science. My name's Ryan Smith, and I'm joined by Twix member Dr. Kate Johnson as she's discussing the Fulbright Fellowship. So, Kate, you mentioned that you'd been hearing some things about the Fulbright Scholarship that kind of piqued your interest, but how long did the process actually take between getting interested and hearing about it and actually being on the plane and leaving? So, overall, from the start of me talking to the host um, about sending an email and saying, hey, so I'm really interested in this part of your research and I think that maybe I'd like to apply for a Fulbright Fellowship. Would you be interested in supporting me, um, which I consider the start, to me getting on a plane? It was two years. And I just, I think that's somewhat similar. So I've listened to Cade's, Cade's recording, Cade's episode is going to be next, which you should definitely listen to. I think he says somewhat similar which made me feel feel better about it because I thought that was quite a long time. That felt like quite a long time to me. But I think that maybe that's just how long these things take because that's from conception to it actually happening. Um, just to break that down a little bit, in March 2020, I contacted my hosts. Um, the application was due that July. So in June, I sort of did the back and forth um, where they read the drafts. In July, I submitted it. And then the outcome was in December 2020. So that's when I found out that I'd got the Fulbright. But then there was COVID. So that stalled the program. The program wasn't actually running um, for a while. So I didn't get my official letter, um, which indicated that I could leave and the program was running again until May 2021. So there's a bit of a gap there um, between December and May. And then in sort of the period between October 2021 to February 2022 that was paperwork and visas you know on and off and then I left in March 2022 and now here we are in December 2022 and I'm about to come home. Did you feel challenged at all moving to a different research environment with different people and in fact did the way that you actually understood how plants are operating in that particular environment change at all? My basic understanding of plants' strategies to survive in their environment was very much challenged because I, like I was saying before, the the deciduous versus evergreen thing, I knew, I knew coming here that everything, all the trees were pretty much going to be deciduous. Trees are generally the focus of my research, so they're also what I I sort of look at and um, focus on while walking around. I knew they were going to be different. I couldn't prepare myself for quite how much the landscape would transform season to season. So I've been here in in all the seasons. I've skipped the worst of winter, which was cheeky and good. (laughs) Um, But when I arrived, you know, no leaves on the trees. It was snowing. And then spring was like fireworks. It was like there were flowers. The trees flowered first and then there were just bright green leaves and the green is completely different to the green in Australia. It's this like really light, soft spring green compared to our bluey, grey sort of eucalypt green. And the way that that transformed again in autumn um, and now now we're back to bare trees again, I just sort of thought the way these trees are 
treating their leaves is just completely, completely different to everything that I've sort of based my fundamental understanding of plant physiology on. I've sort of done all these experiments around, um, you know, when leaves or the canopy are going to die in a drought and, you know, that's really bad because they lose their leaves and then, you know, they have to invest energy in growing new leaves in Tasmania and Australia. But here, these trees, they lose their leaves every year. It's like they, they put out all, these, all this soft leaf material. It doesn't have to survive drought really for that long because then the leaves are gone again. So, yeah, I'd say that it has been not only culturally really eye-opening but also physio in a plant physiological sense, really eye-opening to just see that in, in practice because um, it's very different to home. Yeah, is that a lesson you would say is important to learn for other researchers that, you know, things can change? Environments are very different and particularly with a changing environment, perhaps different strategies of survival are more appropriate so do you think that there are things that you've learned coming over to the U.S. that you're really grateful that you've actually learned now? Definitely. I've learned a lot from the researchers that I've worked with because they've worked mostly in northern hemisphere systems. And I, I hope they've learned from me too because I've worked mostly in southern hemisphere systems. Um, but I think, I think that it's still very important to understand how these different systems work very intimately because understanding the mechanisms that drive how they're going to respond to climate change. Um, we need to know it for a lot of specific systems, but we also definitely need to take a zoomed out view. I feel like that's what this has done for me is take, made me take a zoomed out view and gone, okay, so when I make these statements in papers, I really got to be careful about how I make them and the fact that this is a strategy that applies to this group of trees, um, not to all groups of trees, which... I mean, I always did, but now I feel like it's this really sort of, once you see something, once you're immersed in something, I think it's a different level of understanding and appreciation. And I think, I think also what this has taught me is I, I've always sort of, the Northern Hemisphere is often a big focus of research, um, especially sort of in my field, there's a big population of plant physiologists in the US. And I always sort of read these papers and go, oh, Where's the Southern Hemisphere, though? And I think we really need to work on bringing papers together that um, study both Southern and Northern Hemisphere species at the same time, like you're saying, Ryan, taking into account that there is plant strategy going on here. It's not just a mechanism that you can apply across all trees, for sure. And people are doing that, but it has been a big lesson for me um, that that is an important thing to do. So what does the application actually involve for the Fulbright? Yeah, so um, in practice, what you do is you um, contact the people who you might like to work with. And then the formal application process is a project description, a personal statement, and then other very specific statements for different types of Fulbright scholarships. So there's a, a number of categories that you might be um, applicable to, and each one has its own specific statement. So it's just a series of written pieces, and if you get around to the interview stage, you then have an interview. Were there any particular challenges you faced, though? 
Well, I mean, every application is challenging in its own way. I don't think I faced any like really large challenges because I, I had this quite um, sort of defined idea of what I wanted to do and exactly who I wanted to work with and they were really lovely and supportive. And I think if I hadn't have had that, it might have been more challenging. Um, there were aspects of the application. So I mentioned earlier there's the project description and there's a personal statement and then other statements. The personal statement, which Cade also talked about a bit, is a very unfamiliar type of writing to scientists. It's, um, here's, it's basically, in a nutshell, here's me, here's what shaped me, and here's how that perfectly places me to do this research and also get a lot from it and be able to transfer knowledge to the host as well. So it's quite a lot to do in one page. Um, so I found that concept challenging, but as soon as I started writing it, I actually found it kind of fun. And I I like writing, um, so <laughs> so it was, it was kind of fun, but it's definitely an unfamiliar type of writing, so you definitely need to like leave a bit of time for that if you're thinking of applying. Do you have any other tips for people who might be considering applying? Okay, so UTAS, at least right now, doesn't have a, um, if this is for people from UTAS because they're the people who I feel best placed to advise, but also people from Australia. I don't think many Australian institutions, including UTAS, have an internal review for Fulbright. So um, that would be where there'd be a grants team and you'd send your application to them. They'd expect a draft by a certain date and they'd give you feedback. So there's not a formal process like that. But within UTAS and within a lot of Australian universities, there's a group of Fulbright alumni who are very, very happy to share their experience, to give you their applications. So you should seek them out, seek me out, <laughs> seek, um, yeah, find out who's done a Fulbright and if they'll send you their application and maybe have a chat to you about it. I think that's a really good key first place to start. And also I'd say it's a really good thing to do if there's people you know of or you've heard of or you look up and you see that you really want to work with in the US um, and I'd get sort of people's opinions about what it's like to be in that lab group, meet with that person over Zoom, do a lot of prep work, make sure that it's going to be a fun experience for you and a, a valuable experience to you because it is a long way, it's the other side of the world and um, I imagine that you know, if you don't do that prior research that you might end up in something that's not the right fit for you. So I think that pre-work is a really important thing to do. And then also start early. Start contacting your hosts early. Start your application early. Um, yeah, so seek help from people who've done it before and start early are probably my biggest tips. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. I'd like to say a special thanks to Dr. Kate Johnson for joining me and discussing what it's been like moving from Tasmania to the US as part of her Fulbright Fellowship. Join us next week as we discuss with Cade Kane what it's been like moving from the US to Tasmania as part of his Fulbright Fellowship. If you'd like to know more about the show, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter or go to thatscience.org. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. 
That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. 